Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Beto O'Rourke threw his uh, hat into the ring this morning, metaphorically, uh, in Iowa, uh, giving a, uh, you know, showing up in a diner and answering a few questions in essentially what was a really cool stump speech. Uh, to start out with the flying spaghetti monster, on day one, the flying spaghetti monster separated the water from the heavens. On the second day, because he couldn't tread water for very long and he'd grown tired of flying, now keep in mind he's made out of spaghetti, so if he gets in the water, he's got a problem. He created the land, complemented by a beer volcano. Satisfied, the flying spaghetti monster overindulged in beer and woke up with a hangover. Between drunken nights and clumsy afternoons, the flying spaghetti monster produced seas and lands for a second time, because he forgot he created it the world before, along with a heaven and a midget, which he named Man. Man and an equally short woman lived happily in the Olive Garden of Eden for some time until the flying spaghetti monster caused a global flood in a cooking accident. I shared the Norse creation myth, or at least the little pieces of it, which were parts of, you know, my parents' Uh, uh, ancestors, or at least my father's ancestors, uh, my mother's ancestors are mostly British and Welsh. Uh, Yeah, how did it all start? And to what extent is the whole idea that creation science is a science simply a backdoor way of getting us to religion, of knocking down our belief in science, with what are essentially BS arguments. Frankly, that's my opinion of it. On the line with us right now is uh, Professor Michael J. Behe, B-E-H-E, okay, and and you are Professor of Biochemistry at Lehigh University, an advocate of intelligent design, founding senior fellow of the Discovery Institute for Science and Culture, the author of numerous books, including your most recent, which I have here in my hand and I spent some time with this morning, Darwin Devolves, the new science about DNA that challenges evolution. Lay out your premise for us. Okay, well, I'm a biochemist, so I study the molecular level of life. And back in the day, uh, when Darwin proposed his theory, the cell was supposed to be just a piece of jelly, kind of simple thing, protoplasm, they called it. But in the past hundred plus years, science has discovered that far from being simple, the cell is filled with really sophisticated and complex molecular machines. And I've written books saying that I think a better explanation is that they were designed rather than evolved randomly. And the latest book, Darwin Devolves, focuses on new results past 10, 20 years. And science has gotten the ability to pretty easily sequence DNA, kind of like, you know, just falling off a log. And all sorts of organisms have been sequenced. And now we can answer the question of, what are those mutations that help a species survive? What are they actually doing at the molecular and DNA level? And it turns out that the great majority are helping by breaking or degrading pre-existing genes. That is, they're taking something that's already there and tossing it out. 
and that's the uh, where the title comes from. I call that right. uh, or turning evil, it off evolution, exactly. or turning it off, or suppressing turning genes. In your book, I didn't perhaps I missed it. I didn't read it cover to cover. You were speaking about how Darwin was suggesting that evolution was a slow, gradual process, and in the years since then, of course, the, the theory of punctuated evolution has come about, which says that we've had five major extinctions. Each one of those extinctions involved massive species loss, and the opening as the world recovered from being basically sterilized by these extinctions, the opening of massive ecological niches into which organisms which were highly adapted for those new niches but were might have been maladapted previously were able to flourish and thus you know the dinosaurs went away and were replaced by mammals for example why didn't you address punctuated evolution in your book how do you deal with the contradiction between that and the idea that ymir or muspel or odin created the world intelligently Okay, well, good questions. Uh, the first one is punctuated equilibrium. That was suggested by evolutionary biologist Steve J. Gould back in the day, 40 years or so ago. And it's an interesting observation, but what it is not is an explanation. It's, it's a label for what people find. They see that in the fossil record, at least. I'm no paleontologist, but uh, I read that in the fossil record, things stay the same for a long time and then pretty quickly change. And, well, that's interesting, but it doesn't address the question of, of how it changes, what drove those things. Same thing with the extinctions that you reference. Okay, there were massive extinction events, and then all sorts of new and cool forms arose, but that does not address the question of how that happened. That's, that's intelligent design's focus. The question is, how in the world did all these complex machines and, and cool forms arise? My father's, both my father's parents are from Norway. The Norwegians, they agreed with you. The first world was Muspel. It was not this world. And this frost ogre named Ymir slept, and under his left arm there grew a man and a woman, and they became out of that. They became Bor and Bastilla, where they you know, had three sons, and Odin was the oldest, and they, they basically created the world. And then, you know, when Ymir died, they flung his brains into the air, and they became the clouds. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's an, it's an elaborate story, actually. Why do you think that this story is any less cogent than the story in the Bible that uh, your institute, the Discovery Institute, constantly references, the Christian Bible or the Jewish Bible? Well, I don't know about who you have in mind, but as for me and my books, I don't reference the Bible at all. I don't talk about religious matters at all. Not only don't I talk about Odin. Well, how is intelligent design not a religious matter? You're arguing that there is something that created everything that we're experiencing right now. And, you know, you make an argument that is fairly complex. There's an, an artificial intelligence guy right now who's making the exact same argument. Only he's saying that what we're living in right now is a computer simulation by an advanced race of humans a thousand years in the future who have developed this elaborate computer simulation and we're actually living in that. And, yeah. and it's very similar. I mean, you know, it's, it's the same theory, you know. That sort of. Yeah, you're right. It is sort of similar, but I, I can talk. So which is avoid, it? Let me avoid that for right now. And go why? Back to your first question, why is this not a religious idea? You say that clearly somebody designed this and so on. Well, I argue that it's not a religious idea for the same reason that the Big Bang is not a religious idea. Back in the 30s, when it was first proposed, lots of physicists simply hated the idea of the Big Bang. And many argued that it was a religious idea because it posited a beginning to the universe. And science needed, many people said, science had to have an eternal universe in order to avoid... Well, uh, you know, a large part of the Big Bang theory was that you have inflation and then you have collapse. And so it's, it's really a cycle that there's this thing here called the universe and it goes through these, these cycles. Now we've got this multiverse theory and all this kind of stuff. But if there's an intelligent designer who created all this, who created the intelligent designer? The answer is, I don't know. But whenever we see, uh, you know, a machine or whenever we see a painting or whenever we see things that have been put together for a purpose, we always conclude that it has been designed. And surprisingly, astonishingly, science has found in the cell amazing machines, really complex ones, and literally machines made out of molecules. But these are machines, these molecular machines are demonstrably 
the product of evolution. If you, if you start with algae and end up with us, there's a whole bunch of steps in between, and that's called evolution. Are, are, you, are well, you suggesting that the intelligent designer actually created human beings fully formed just like we are right now? Is that your assertion? No, of course not. Intelligent design does not dispute common descent or long periods of time or that we arose ultimately from algae. It disputes Darwin's mechanism, that random mutation and natural selection. Well, Stephen Jay Gould, uh, you know, disputed that, as, as you correctly pointed out. I, you know, Darwin's idea of slow progress and all that kind of stuff is, is overly simplistic. And that doesn't mean that there's not some reality to evolution. Oh, no, of course not. And in my book, I clearly say that Darwin's mechanism can account for smallish changes. But Stephen Jay Gould... Gould accounts for large changes. I mean, the fact of the matter is there have been changes, right? So how do you handle the fundamentalist Christians who say, no, the intelligent creator, let's say, instead of God, not only created the universe, but created me, created people? Well, I say I disagree. I say that I think there's good evidence for common descent. I think there's good evidence for humans descending from other species and so on. But I don't think it could have happened by random mutation and natural selection. And Stephen Jay Gould did say that, well, maybe things happen suddenly and rapidly sometimes. But he famously did not say how that could have happened. No, he and said he said as a as a result of disasters, of of local disasters, of you know, which can be things like drought and whatnot, or of you know, worldwide catastrophes like extinction events. Well, a disaster at best only opens up a space into which other organisms might come. It does not explain how they get there. It's kind of like saying that, well, here's a brand new sheaf. Of well, that's, that's the point that Stephen Gould was making, is, is that mutations adapt some organisms to new environments that previously would have been considered maladaptions. Now they're, now they're positive adaptions. Well, I mean, there are people who make that argument about ADHD being, you know, a, a, an evolutionary advantage for people in the computer age. Well, I don't know about that, but the thing is that if you read my book, Darwin Devolves, it's only been in the past 10, 20 years that science has been able to determine what these mutations are that help organisms. Stephen Jay Gould unfortunately died before that time, and what we now find is that most of the helpful mutations are ones that actually throw away pre-existing machinery. And right, but you're just talking about the mechanism of it. I mean, you know, how, well, yeah. how, how can you deny the existence of it? I don't. I don't. <laughs> so, so are you suggesting that the intelligence, the intelligent designer, this was what, you know, uh, what uh, Thomas Jefferson believed was, that the, you know, the, the deist, that the universe was created by something intelligent, brought into being, and then that guy just stepped out of the way. Real quickly, is that your perspective? Uh, no, that's not. Okay. All right. I, I'm sorry we're out of time. This is a hard break. I have no control over it. Dr. Michael J. Behe is the author of Darwin's Devolves, The New Science About DNA That Challenges Evolution. Thank you for dropping by. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good talking with you for this. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Does your current office chair support you? I mean, if you're lucky, maybe it goes up and down, but can you sit in it for hours before it becomes uncomfortable? You know, I, I broke my back skydiving back when I was 20 years old, and finding a good chair has been a lifelong struggle. The X chair has this dynamic variable lumbar support. They call it DVL. The X chair's DVL was designed to adjust to you, and every other part of the chair can be custom adjusted to fit you. That's why the X chair is equally supportive, whether you're 5'2 and 110 or 6'4 and 250. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as 30 bucks a month. Take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. X-Chair's on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair. xchairtom.com. And it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today I'm reading from The Prophet's Way, A Guide to Living in the Now. It's actually a compilation of diaries and letters that I sent to friends on travels around the world. And it's kind of an autobiography, I suppose, of sorts. This is from Life in a Teepee. It's on page 25. And it starts with a quote from Lenny Bruce. Every day people are straying away from the church and going back to God. 
Uh, my best friend through school was Clark Stinson. We met when we were 13, and instead of pursuing the normal pastimes of teenagers, we spent our time studying Sanskrit. We had an old study guide book I found in my father's library, reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead and arguing minutia from the Bible. Clark's mother was interested in metaphysics and shared a book called Autobiography of a Yogi with us. Years later, when I went to Detroit with her and Clark to attend an initiation in Kriya Yoga by Yogacharya Oliver Black, the oldest living disciple of Yogananda, I recognized Yogananda's Kriya technique as identical to an ancient Coptic exercise Master Stanley had taught us years earlier called the Cobra Breath. I introduced Clark to Master Stanley and Lee, and Clark and I began a serious study of spirituality. We were both in our late teens by then, and Clark had recently married. I was recovering from a painful breakup with a girlfriend, and we agreed that to do our spiritual work best, we should seek isolation. So Clark and his wife bought a teepee, and I bought one, and we three gave away everything else we own in the world, except some clothes and our spiritual books. We bought 100 pounds of wheat, 100 pounds of dried fruits, some basic camping equipment, and got a ride into, up into Michigan's Upper Peninsula, where an old trapper led us on a three-day trek back into the Chippewa National Forest to a small lake that isn't on most maps. We spent the summer there, Clark and his wife on one side of the lake, me on the other. Three days a week, we practiced silence and did meditation and prayer every day for hours. I had a pet tachnid fly, a small insect that looks like a honeybee, but is actually a fly. When I'd meditate in the morning on my blanket outside my teepee, he'd come and hover just over my right hand as if he were drawing nourishment from me. Sometimes he'd hover there for as much as 20 minutes. Occasionally he'd land and walk around with careful steps like an astronaut exploring a distant but friendly planet. I also shared my teepee with a large and furry brown and black wolf spider who came out at night as the sun set and picked the sleeping mosquitoes off the canvas on the west side of my teepee. I watched the play of life and death, predator and prey. Here's an odd synchronicity that Carl Jung would have appreciated. I haven't seen a tachnid fly for years, but as I'm typing these words into a laptop computer on my back porch in Atlanta, one just hovered over my left hand for a few moments and then landed. He's here with me as I'm sitting as I'm typing, sitting on my hand. One cold and rainy afternoon, Clark and I were walking through the woods looking for berries and edible plants. We'd gotten pretty skilled at identifying what was safe and what wasn't, and we're filling a bag with leaves and fruits. This must be what our ancestors lived like, Clark observed, hunting and gathering. Except we're vegetarians, so we're just gathering, I said, joking. But to Clark, it wasn't a joke. Seriously, what we call civilization started when humans started farming. But humans like us were around for tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of years before that, fully conscious, awake, aware, thinking and feeling just like us. But they were hunters and gatherers instead of farmers. I said, without agriculture, there'd be no civilization. It was an interesting thought. Remember Miss Hemmer, Clark said? Miss Hemmer had been our eighth grade biology teacher and one of the best teachers I'd ever known in my life. Clark and I had conspired to make her life difficult, but we also loved her and learned more from her each month than from any of our other teachers in a year. And she was a huge fan of Margaret Mead. Clark said, she said that in primitive societies, there isn't suicide, depression, drug addiction, all that stuff. The noble savage, I said, shivering. I'm skeptical and cold. And the Indians who lived here once were probably cold too. He shrugged and said, this life seems much more natural to me. At least I had to agree with that. A few days later, Clark came running over to my teepee with his Bible all excited. Look at this, he said, pointing to Genesis 4-2. It says, Cain was a tiller of the ground. The Bible is talking about how the first murderer was also the first farmer. And in the 25th verse, it makes it clear that Abel, the brother who was not the farmer, was the one who loved God the most. So what, I said. It's a classic archetype of the oldest child being the most beloved, but also the one who screws up. It's all over, from Greek mythology to Shakespeare. Don't you see, Clark said, Adam and Eve were gatherers like we are now. They walked around the Garden of Eden and picked up food. But then they tasted of the knowledge of good and evil, of life and death. That's your food supply. You live or die by it. When you live as a gatherer, you live by a whim of nature. If there's no food, you die. When you begin to store up food, you can defy nature and survive a drought. You then have the power to control life, the knowledge of life or death, or good and evil. So the tasting of the apple must have meant that Adam and Eve experimented with agriculture, and in doing so, they defied the God of nature. It's a warning. It's saying that the primitive life of hunting, gathering, and herding was more in accord with nature's way than is agriculture. Clark dove deep into the issue, but I didn't consider it all that important at the time. 
I couldn't see how when people started farming after the end of the Ice Age, it had been such a bad thing. After all, it brought us modern society and science. Clark, however, was totally certain that agriculture and what he called the organized ones were responsible for the coming death of the earth. The book, The Prophet's Way. Howard in Indiana. Hey, Howard, what's on your mind? No, Tom, how are you doing today? Good. What's up? Uh, on, on creation, read the Bible. Yes, I am a Christian, so I'll come right up front with that. But I would say to the people, instead of trying to study different things about how the world is created, we all must remember, everybody on your show, you, me, all of us, we all die. When yep. we die, we're going to get the chance. We'll go before God. And we can well, maybe, Howard. I mean, that's you're, you're reflecting your religion. It may be that it just goes black, or it may be that we merge into the light and we become everything. It could be that Edgar Casey was right, and that suddenly we have access to all the information in all of recorded history between the skeins of time and space, to, to, to quote Casey. There's a thousand things that might happen when we die. Uh, yeah, Tom, we're going to ask God a lot of questions, but God will just have one question for us. He'll have the same question for everybody. I'm listening. And that will be, that will be, what did you do with your life? So you're in conflict with a good chunk of Christianity. You know, the evangelical Christianity says it doesn't matter what you did as long as you confess Jesus. Calvinistic Christianity says it doesn't matter what you do, period, because your salvation is determined before you are born. And that's why we have to find rich people, because those are the ones that God has blessed. You're reflecting a very narrow slice of Christian theology, Howard. Take a quick step, but what I'm saying is this, that God will ask you what you did with your life, and the answer you want to have is that I accepted your son, Jesus. Okay, Jesus so you're, you're part of the salvationists. Jesus said that in the last days that people were going to come before him, and he was going to separate them based on whether they fed the homeless, whether they gave water to the thirsty, whether they visited those in prison, whether they healed the sick, and whether they welcomed the stranger. I mean, it's right there in Matthew 25. I encourage you to read it, Howard. Jesus did not say, you have to have accepted me. So, you know, you want to get into a theological argument. Good luck. Maverick in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Maverick, what's on your mind today? My goodness gracious, Tom, this is perhaps the most exciting topic I have ever heard you bring up on your program. And Intelligent design? Letting me... Well, the controversy regarding okay. it and how silly it is. Yes, I mean, intelligent design, and I'll try to be brief here because this is something I feel very passionate about. And I've also been very curious as to where you have stood on this for the last three years that I've been listening to. But the immediate problem that intelligent design presents is who designed the designer. Right. I mean, it's that obvious. So you're starting from a dead end in the beginning. And I say it's us, man-made God. It makes the most sense. I mean, faith is really just belief on bad evidence. Yeah. Natural selection is improbable, but it's not impossible. And it's like the lottery. You know, your chance of winning the lottery is highly improbable, but right. the chance of someone winning the lottery is not are you familiar with George Hotz, H-O-T-Z? Uh, no, I'm He's, a big fan of Dawkins, Hitchens, et cetera. No, I get that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go off a little bit on a peripheral direction here that, that I think is actually right from the core of all this. George Hotz is one of the guys who was the hacker and founder of the self-driving startup comma.ai. It's one of the companies that's working on AI cars, you know, self-driving cars and things like that, and on artificial intelligence. And he did a presentation at South by Southwest last week called Jailbreaking the Simulation. And he says, all of us are an advanced simulation observed by either an omnipotent extraterrestrial or an artificial intelligence far beyond the realm of human conception and understanding. This is quoting from his presentation, quote, there's no evidence this is not true. Which takes us back to what's yeah. his name's teapot, uh, you know, that if you can't... Russell. Yeah, Bertrand Russell's, Russell's teapot, thank you. That there's this teapot floating around in interstellar space, and because we can't see it, that's not proof that it's not there. And then he goes on to say the universe itself is potentially a computer simulation, either a video game or some other form of entertainment for advanced life forms, or possibly some type of artificially intelligence-guided simulation of ancestral life created by a far future version of humanity. Is it possible that the world that we're living in, that this is, we're, we're all living in a simulation? 
It's like ants in an ant farm, right? We look at the ant farm, the ants are thinking, oh, I got a hole, I got a burrow, it's kind of weird, but, you know. So Sam Harris addresses this, and he's a neurobiologist and an incredibly smart person. And I think that theory about us being part of a simulation is fascinating, but I don't buy it. And I cannot disprove it. There is no evidence against it. That's true. That's true. But there's a lot of things that we can't prove. However, I think the only logical, rational path under those circumstances is to go with what is most likely, most probable. You're reverting to Occam's razor here. Exactly. Occam's razor shows this to be true. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to dominate your show, Tom, but thank you, thank you, thank you so much for bringing up this topic. Because <laughs> I firmly believe that religion means to do us real harm. Yeah. And it has. So any group of people that is looking forward to the end of the world, regardless of everyone else here, is dangerous. Or even the end of their own lives. I mean, that's what animates many of these suicide bombers, you know, looking forward to the end of their own lives and going to heaven and having their 70 virgins and all that. Maverick, I got to move along, but thank you. Well said on all points. Jen in Redford, Wisconsin. Hey, Jen, what's up? Hey, I joined the conversation late, so I hope that I'm relevant. But as an ordained minister, I look at, like, the creation story as shown in the uh, Judeo-Christian Bible and other faiths and traditions as mythology to explain what we have no way of explaining. It's not to be believed necessarily, but it's just something to, like, help our feeble brains get through it. You know, the origins of religion and science are probably cl- pretty pretty close to identical. They're, they're attempts mm-hmm. by human beings to understand why things happen, and thus, mm-hmm. through that understanding, hopefully gain some control over it. And that's where science goes from, okay, we understand now how DNA works, now let's try modifying that DNA. And this was, you know, Gregor uh-huh. Mendel and all that kind of stuff, or even the modern, you know, CRISPR stuff. And with religion, it's like, okay, we think we understand how this all came about. There must be this man up in the sky who, you know, gets upset with us from time to time. So how do we influence him? Oh, we sacrifice kids, you know, uh, you know, let's take Isaac up on the mountain and and, uh, and nearly cut his throat uh, or smash right, his head right, in with a right. rock, whatever he was going to do. And it seems like they're kind of the same thing. And this is why science has largely replaced religion in the more secular sphere. And particularly in Europe, I lived mm-hmm. in Europe for a year. And even in Europe, most of the people who are churchgoers are not actually religious. It's not so much they believe it, it's a more of a social experience, whereas here in the United like, States... Like a secular humanism kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, even yeah, in the yeah. Lutheran and Catholic Church, right? I mean, you know, uh-huh. I lived in this little town and got to know a lot of these people, and science has become a secular religion, and then you get guys like my guest today, Michael Behe, who comes along and says, uh-huh. I'm a scientist, and I'm telling you, you got to discard science now. So he's saying about science the same thing that, you know, people who are followers of science are saying about religion. I'm saying that they have, you know, a common thread trying to understand the world and then trying mm-hmm. to understand, using that understanding to manipulate the world in ways that benefit us. Your thoughts on that as an ordained minister, Jen? My thoughts are, we have brains, we should use them. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, <laughs> I love it. You know, <laughs> we, we have reason, let's employ it. Yeah. Um, that, that religion doesn't explain things. Science does a darn good job of explaining so many things. But neither of them are foolproof because both of them are human design. I mean, we made it up, and, you know, so let's let's live and be decent to each other and try to, in, in, in my occupation, we call it stewardship. Yeah. You know, let's be good stewards of what we have and not be jerks about it. Um you know that that's my basic and and not and not be so arrogant not be a church yeah and not be so arrogant as to as to think that our understanding is the only understanding although you know again back in the day Back down in Aztec, Mexico, they threw a bunch of kids into a pit in order to make sure that the rains came, and sure enough, the rains came. So they just kept throwing kids into pits every year because every year the rain came. Uh, when I lived in coincidence is wonderful, isn't yeah. Well, or 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 just the natural world. When I lived in Germany, I heard the story that the reason that they that we light up trees is because literally in Germany, you know, they had they found these little Stonehenge kind of things that date back to Neolithic times, you know, uh-huh. ten fifteen thousand years ago, or just right after the end of 
of the Ice Age, they seem to be designed mostly to predict yeah, the solstices and the equinoxes. Yeah. And that what, yep. you know, the story that I was told is that the, quote, scientists of the day were also the religious folks of the day. And, mm -hmm. you know, they were the shaman, essentially. And they knew from right, looking right. at where the shadows were falling on their little Stonehenge thing that today, December 25th, is going to be the shortest, or 22nd, is going to be the shortest day of the year. And so on that shortest day of the year, which all the people were getting freaked out about because the sun was getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, on that shortest day of the year, the head priest would go up on the tallest mountain and find the biggest pine tree he could because pine trees are full of pitch mm -hmm. and they burn really well. And he'd light that sucker on fire and it would light up the sky and he'd say, sun, reappear. And the next day would be a little <laughs> bit longer and the next day would be a little bit longer. And for a whole nother year, the people would be going, he did it again, you know, and <laughs> So I mean, by gosh, yeah, and, and whatever. yeah, and this is the origin of both religion and science is you know perceived uh -huh. phenomena leading to logical conclusions which are then testable hypotheses over time, and mm -hmm. when they stopped lighting the tree every winter in, you know, 9,312 years ago or whenever it was, or maybe uh, maybe 400 years ago, when they stopped uh -huh. lighting the tree, they discovered that the sun still came back and that diminished the power of the priest. But, you know, with science, we can say, okay, you know, uh, if you if you stop taking an antibiotic, uh, you know, that you're, you're going to get an infection back and it's not going to be a good thing. Mm -hmm. So it's a little more observable. Yeah, and you know what? When it's really dark, it sure is nice to see lights or a tree burning. There you go. Yeah, even metaphorically, like a Christmas good. tree, you know, or not metaphorically, right, right. but, you know, it, meta it to it. It feels good, it lifts our spirits, and we're less likely to be jerks. There you go, so, there you go. And don't be a jerk. That's Jen's best advice for the day, and I think it's spectacular. That is my religious philosophy, don't be a jerk. From an ordained minister. Jen, thank you so much for the call, and thanks for listening to <laughs> us. Thanks for listening okay. to us there. Yeah, bye-bye in Wisconsin on Sirius XM. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one Triple eight own gold. That's one eight 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 O W N G O L D. One triple eight own gold. Robert in Stark, Florida. Hey, Robert. Thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom. I've been listening to you for a long time. I used to live in a little town, Yarnell, and I remember when you used to live on a houseboat. Yeah. So I rarely call in. But uh, on the subject of divine stuff, is that I think we're all the illegal aliens on this planet. How so? Because we don't we don't fit in with nature. Well, if, I, I think originally we did, uh, you know. But certainly, in, uh, you know, you could argue since the agricultural revolution. I would say it's really since the technological revolution, up until about two hundred years ago. Every animal on Earth, including humans, well, maybe this goes back to the Bronze Age, actually, their waste was somebody else's food. Every life form on Earth, the waste that they produce is food for some other life form. And that was true of humans, too, until we started producing waste that was actually toxic to all other life forms. And I don't know if that goes back to the beginning of metallurgy, you know, three, four thousand years ago, or if if that really begins with the, you know, the chemical and industrial revolution in the 19th century, uh, making things out of petroleum and whatnot. Um, but now, uh, particularly with nuclear waste, we're producing waste that not only is not food for any other species, but that will be toxic and poisonous for hundreds of millions of years. I mean, that, that certainly qualifies us as outside the realm of part of nature, does it not? Well, I was thinking of um, our birth. Um, you, you know, uh, without my mom uh, nurturing me, I wouldn't survive. If we left a baby on its own, it would never survive. Right. 
So well, I but, just wonder if but that's that's I mean, we don't seem to fit in with nature. Oh, well, I think that's true of every species. Well, they seem to be able to walk or, you know, move to, you know, be able to oh, move around. Well, yeah, humans. I, I just wonder when, um, like a humans, when we become self-aware. Well, that's a good question, and, and uh, the definition of self-aware is a good question, and, and, you know, what other species can do that, and, you know, that used to be thought of as purely a human characteristic. Now we know, you know, that there are primates and there are uh, cetaceans, are they called, you know, whales and, and dorp, uh, dolphins and porpoises that have that ability, certain birds have that ability. It's all fascinating stuff. Robert, I, I need to move along and get another caller in here, but thank you for the call. Joe in Chino, California. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind? Three brief points here on the intelligent design thing. Number one, Jefferson, if you check his letter to the Danbury Baptists, you will find the phrase separation of church and state there. Yes, I know. Yeah. Secondly, in Genesis, there are two versions of creation in that. If the Bible is infallible, which one of those is wrong? Yeah, good, good point. They appear to have come from two different eras, if not necessarily two different tribes. And number three? Right. Uh, uh, the last part is if you check uh, Kitz Miller versus the Dover uh, Area School Board, I think it is. Mm -hmm. um, there was a textbook in there called "The Pandas and People," in which there was a uh, massive change in the textbook that involved a cut and paste operation that replaced intelligent design for creation science. Hmm. And you know, if you've ever done cut and paste before, you know how sometimes you will get like half the word out. Right. So it'd be create a intelligent design right. or something like right. that. Now, intelligent uh, design is just the front for creation science, and creation science is just the front for evangelical Christianity. I mean, let's just call this exactly what it is. Joe, uh, excellent points all. Thank you very much for the call. Thanks for listening to our app. Janice, if I'm saying that right, I'm sorry I don't have a city for you. Yes. It says you're listening on KGOE. That would be what, Eureka? Eureka, California, Humboldt County. Yep. So what's up? Um, yeah, I've been listening to another fascinating discussion about uh, the, you know, evolution and religion and all that, and it, uh, I remembered something. The 1903 Nobel Prize chemist Arrhenius introduced the concept of panspermia, the seeding of life through spores of living cells from different planets. Right. And that, by the way, there's, you know, we, we now have found, I believe, We've found mm -hmm. uh, certainly complex uh, organic molecules, carbon-containing molecules, in meteorites. Yes, yes. And in 1973, the Nobel Prize laureate Francis Crick referred to directed panspermia. Directed meaning that one genetic code for all terrestrial life. He puzzled over, and, um, and he didn't think it could have happened by chance. And uh, he agreed with Arthurinius that life on Earth was likely seeded and directed by advanced intelligences. This is hmm. Francis Crick of Crick and Watson who discovered sure. DNA. Yeah, uh, who has since been somewhat discredited in, in other realms by applying his theories to uh, race, uh, racial matters. Uh -huh. But, uh, right. yeah, it's an interesting one. And I guess the answer to that question would come down to, and, and in fact, there was a piece in Science a couple of weeks ago, and I have not yet had an opportunity to read anything more than the headline, but would come down to whether or not it's possible to construct, you know, complex living structures with DNA or an equivalent of DNA that has fewer than or more than four basic building blocks. I mean, right now, it's the four amino acids that make DNA, uh, adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine, if I'm remembering correctly. And with RNA, I think thymine is replaced with uracil. But, but basically, you know, it's those four, it's the combination of those four, and adenine and guanine, let's see, adenine and, and thymine always connect, and guanine and cytosine always connect, although they can connect A, B, or B, A. And so the question would be, if you were to try to create DNA with six molecules instead of, you know, four potential molecules, you could still do a double helix structure, um, uh -huh. you know, would it right. be viable? I mean, you know, is it, right. because the DNA is the thing that we, we share, this four protein DNA is something that we share all the way back to the original red algae a couple billion years ago before the planet was even basically running on photosynthesis. Right, and, right. After the discovery of DNA of a double helix molecule that contains the singular genetic code for all Earth life from bacteria and fish to plants and humans. Right. Isn't that amazing? It really and, is. Well, that caused me to think of a, about a couple other things. I majored in anthropology at UC Berkeley. I heard and read the best and all that. And over and over again, it was emphasized that that astounding evolutionary jumps have taken place just in the last 10,000 years. Sure. 
And on a um, geological time scale, that's just one millisecond of past. Oh, I know. In fact, we, you know, we've, I have just passed. Well, that we, we've seen some of that, you know, even more recently. There have been, you know, some some documented cases where habitat changes are so radical that, that you know, these genetic mutations become adaptations and, and boom, yeah. you've got a brand new species and, and new species are constantly uh, evolving. And we particularly right. see that with bacteria, the emergence right. of, of antibiotic uh, bag, resistant uh, E. coli, for example, E. coli H157, the one that causes right. kidney failure. That was evolution at work. It was the, it was the bacteria in a cow uh, stomach, in all probability, responding mm-hmm. to the antibiotics that were routinely being fed to the cow. And, right. and the fact that it was probably in cows is enhanced by the, by the fact that this particular DNA is not a pathogen for cows. It doesn't kill cows. It just kills humans. And, right. and so, it, you know, if it had evolved in us, it probably wouldn't have gone very far because it would have killed its host. And, and the, whole, you know, the whole thing is fascinating. But the question, if the math of it all or if just the, the physical construct of it all, the, the entire universe, literally, is that life is always going to evolve with an adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine-based and, and uh, you know, ribonucleic acid, sugar-based, you know, or, or, or deoxyribonucleic acid, um, you know, that it's always going to evolve with this particular type of DNA anywhere in the universe. If that's just like a, a, a mathematical, physical reality, just like you know, right. certain certain uh, elements in the atomic uh, scale on the atomic table are always going to you know I- emit uh, uh, particular particles, you know, beta particles or alpha particles or certain types of radiation over time, and others are going to be metals at certain temperatures, and others are going to be you know liquids at certain temperatures. If this is basically a physical law of the universe, then probably most of the life in the universe resembles at least one of the life forms that evolved here on earth you know it could be dinosaurs it could be anything and yes exactly that that dna is 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 universal yeah so well that's the question i mean you know if it's possible that you could have you know six amino acid dna or if it's possible that life forms can evolve using something other than dna then you know we've got a fascinating question well, I'm, I'm especially interested in the in the. Um, I've always I've never forgotten the the evolutionary jumps. Just where anthropology is about humankind, you know, right. just in humankind alone that have taken place. They're astounding in the last just the last ten thousand years. And then in my further life, I've I've read on and I've incorporated all these thoughts and all that. And and I really do believe that there we are have been influenced by an extraterrestrial and intelligence. Yeah. I, I do that. I've had to com- conclude that, and a lot of scientists are concluding the same thing. And and for if, if, if it's if for people that have a hard, if it's hard for people to take this in, but mm. but the evidence is out there right now. I mean, when with the wiki evidence of what? I'm sorry, of, uh, Janice. John Podesta, pardon. The evidence of what? The evidence. Oh, the evidence of of, of advanced intelligence is influencing our evolutionary oh. leaps forward. If you go back to uh, Stephen Jay Gould and his theory of punctuated evolution, it's that you know, as you have disasters, out of those disasters come opportunities. Um, yes. You know, and, yeah. and, and, and that accounts for it. And that doesn't require a supernatural or a an alien intelligence. Right. Well, you have to uh, actually open your mind to the fact that there could be the influence of alien intelligence. Well, I'm, I'm there. And, I'm there. And but I'd, well, I'd like to point out that um, um, I, when the John Podesta WikiLeak dumps mm-hmm. happened, um, um, a lot of those were devoted to him emailing astronauts and generals and people at the Pentagon, and they weren't discussing the fact that there might be an alien intelligence here. They were discussing the discussion of the emails, which I read, was about the fact that there was one here and how to disclose it. Huh. That's interesting. Okay, I'm going to have to look into that. that, that, You can refer to that. So that just kind of like confirmed what I've been kind of put together over the last 20 or 30 years just by kind of keeping my eyes and ears open and fascinating stuff kind of being kind of open-minded yeah. so basically my point is yeah. that tremendous evolutionary jumps are yeah. I, I believe that we are from the stars that's, I, that's basically what i'm going to boil you know to i i'm not going to dispute it i'm yeah. absolutely not going to dispute it. it makes more sense to me frankly than intelligent design janice thank you for the call hartmut in kennesaw georgia hey hartmut what's up it seems to me that intelligent design, and, and possibly even if I understood correctly, 
the notions of sort of celestial interference in our evolution by the stars, you might say, by cosmic evolution. I think all of that has been actually fairly well put to rest, it seems to me, although it's been very much neglected by Richard Dawkins, who pointed out that the uh, premise of our need for a, somehow for a creator or for something outside of of nature is premised on the idea that complex things can't arise from chance right. you know, or the complexity that we now have is inconceivable to have arrived from chance and yet what Richard Dawkins points out is that the celestial watchmaker must be infinitely more complex than the watch that he makes or in general just the human watchmaker is infinitely more complex than the watch that he makes so what you're really doing is you're hoisting yourself on your own petard you know in other words it's an infinite regress at best where you keep going to more and more complex no i get it there's a concept in math and physics about the attractor and you can create the mathematical formula for it that well gravity is an example actually do the math gravity is an attractor obviously it's holding the moon around us what if complexity itself is an attractor? That is, I think most of these theories operate on the assumption that entropy is the main attractor, that everything is ultimately going to devolve to less and less complexity over time, and you know, eventually everything ends up just a, you know, a sea of particles, the whole entropy theory. And I'm wondering if complexity itself is the attractor and you know that it's somehow built into physical systems. And I think the evidence of that would be gravity and electromagnetic and the, even the weak and strong nuclear forces. And therefore, everything is constantly moving toward more complex forms. And therefore, evolution is not all that unusual. It's all just a normal thing. Hartman, thanks for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And if evolution does tend toward greater complexity and greater sophistication, then how does that explain Donald Trump? Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest ways for hackers to make money. When you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. Using ExpressVPN, I can safely surf even on public Wi-Fi without having my personal data stolen. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom to learn more. Amazing Donald Trump uh, tweeting Fox News and his Fox News lies and says that the founder of Greenpeace says climate change is a scam. This guy, his name is Moore. Patrick Moore, he's not the founder of Greenpeace. He was one of thousands of people who joined Greenpeace in its first year. And then within a year, went off to start his own little think tank where he consults with oil companies and gas companies and, you know, helps them deny climate change. I mean, he's got nothing. Greenpeace came out and said, you know, Moore is not a co-founder. He does not represent Greenpeace. He's a paid lobbyist, not an independent source. But, you know, Tucker Carlson says he's the founder of Greenpeace. And so Donald Trump tweets it. It's insane. I mean, even his lies are second-generation lies in many cases. It's just mind-boggling. Carrie, watching us on Free Speech TV in Rochester, Washington. Hey, Carrie, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. Here's the thing. The quantum physicists found out when they were doing experiments that their consciousness was actually affecting the experiment, okay? That's right, the double-slit experiments, for example. Exactly. When they were observing them, it was matter. When a machine observed it, it behaved it, like energy, okay? Right, like a wave instead of a particle, yes. Right. It was, and they couldn't figure out how it could be wave and particle at the same time. So they started, a bunch of these guys, the bakers of the bomb, a few of them went to Eastern religions, mm-hmm. okay? And so they found out, their theory is that 
consciousness is primary to matter. And these leaps and evolution are because of this, that there's these leaps, and then you have these more complex and advanced thoughts and stuff. And they're saying that this wave is full of this information, and consciousness collapses this wave or decodes it into the manifest world. So consciousness itself is probably primary to matter, and the consciousness collapses this wave and makes physical forms, and you have to have a brain to collapse the wave or to decode the wave into the manifest world. Yeah, if I was starting a religion, I would start it around this simple concept, and you've, Kerry, articulated it really well. And I think that, in my opinion, consciousness, and I'm not talking about thinking. People think we're talking about thinking when we say consciousness. I'm not talking about thinking. I think that consciousness is the original energy. It's what everything else came out of. Consciousness slowed down a little bit, and that became light. Consciousness slowed down a little bit more, that became, you know, other forms of radiation. Uh, Consciousness slowed down a little bit more, and that became matter, and thus the Big Bang came into being when consciousness just, you know, became conscious of itself or something, and that literally everything is made out of consciousness. And that would be the attractor that I was talking about with the last caller that pushes things towards complexity because consciousness is pulling complexity out of the universe or out of the simplicity of individual you know, quarks and mesons and protons, neutrons, and electrons. Make sense? So it's happening constantly. This yes. Class, we're not aware that we're collapsing this wave, that consciousness is collapsing. It's happening constantly. Oh, yeah. There was a physicist who, who described it as the unending, uh, the, the ceaselessly unending quantum soup, that literally, as you look over your shoulder, suddenly that part of the world collapses into reality. But when you look away, it ceases to be reality, and it, it goes back to being basically, you know, whatever it all is. And, boy, what a theory. Now, that also is, you know, very anthropomorphic, or has aspects of anthropomorphism in it. You know, the idea that humans are doing this. It may be that every life form that has the ability to notice something, right down to the bacteria, is doing this. Carrie, thank you for the call. Today we're reading from Juan Cole's book, Muhammad. Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. This is from the preface. The new world religion of Islam arose against the backdrop of a 7th century game of thrones between the Russian Empire and the Sasanian Empire of Iran that was fought with unparalleled savagery for nearly three decades. The imperial armies zigzagged bloodily across the Near East, the Fertile Crescent, Asia Minor, and the Balkans. Although the Quran makes it clear that the struggle between rival emperors, whom contemporaries called the two eyes of the earth, formed an essential context for the mission of the prophet Muhammad, historians have only recently attempted explorations of the latter's life and thought with this framework in mind. This book puts forward a reinterpretation of early Islam as a movement strongly inflected with values of peacemaking that was reacting against the slaughter of the decades-long war and attendant religious strife. From the Crusades to colonialism, conflicts between Christians and Muslims led to a concentration among writers of European heritage on war and Islam, leaving the dimensions of peace and cooperation neglected. Both peace and war are present in the Quran, just as they are in the Bible. The Quran insists on liberty of conscience and forbearance toward enemies, and it prohibits unprovoked aggressive warfare. It promises salvation to all righteous monotheists and not just to followers of the Prophet Muhammad. That many outsiders and a not inconsiderable number of adherents have associated it with none of these values, and indeed have often interpreted it as upholding the converse, demonstrates how badly it has been understood. The misapprehensions came about for many reasons, including the imperial ideologies of the later Christian Byzantine and Muslim Abbasid empires, difficulties in interpreting the text, and a failure to read it against contemporary Roman and Iranian texts, a procedure that allows us to compare and contrast its values and concerns with those of others living in that era. The Iranian invasion of Roman territory from 603 forward threatened the independence of Western Arabia, where Muhammad was based. The Sasanian conquest of Jerusalem in 614 struck contemporaries as apocalyptic and provoked a mystical response from the prophet. 
A close reading of the Quran shows that a profound distress at the carnage of that age led Muhammad to spend the first half of his prophetic career, 610 to 622, imagining an alternative sort of society, one firmly grounded in practices of peace. The Quran insists that aggressive warfare is wrong and that if the enemy seeks an armistice, Muslims are bound to accept the entreaty. This disallowing of aggressive war and search for resolution, even in the midst of violent conflict, justifies the title prophet of peace, even if Muhammad was occasionally forced into a defensive campaign. The Quran contains a doctrine of just war, but not of holy war, and does not use the word jihad in that latter connotation. It views war as an unfortunate necessity when innocence and even the freedom of conscience are threatened. It strictly forbids vigilantism and equates premeditated killing of non-combatants with genocide, paraphrasing in this regard Jewish commentaries on the Bible in the Jerusalem Talmud. The Quran, read judiciously alongside later histories, suggests that during Muhammad's lifetime, Islam spread peacefully in the major cities of Western Arabia. The soft power of the Quran's spiritual message has typically been underestimated in most treatments of this period. The image of Muhammad and very early Islam that emerges from a careful reading on peace themes contradicts Western views. Muhammad by Juan Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and Mike in Corsi, Washington. Hey, Mike, what's up? I just wanted to make a few comments. God made man and the earth to have a, a relationship. Man's the one that made religions. To me, all religions were created to take away from the Word of God. And so that's where religions come in. It's why it's so complex, and we have so many of them. Well, I guess you know, the fundamental argument, Mike, is going to boil down to how are you defining God and how are you defining the Word of God? Because you know, if humankind, if the experiment of conscious life on the planet is an attempt to reconnect or become aware of that consciousness, which is everything, which, uh, from which everything came. If originally there was consciousness, the consciousness became energy, the energy slowed down and became matter, but it all came out of consciousness. And now that matter has, has assembled itself in ways that are sufficiently complex that it can be the eyes and ears of that consciousness. This is my spiritual mentor, Gottfried Mueller. He had this theory that, which I wrote about in my book, The Prophet's Way, this theory that basically we are the way that whatever created the universe, you know, God, the creator of the universe, we are the way that that, that creator experiences the creation through our eyes and ears, and therefore we have an obligation to fully experience it ourselves. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about, or are you right. going That's off right. on more of a biblical rant? Well, it's more like he's a living God. He exists in us, and that is where he exists, is in our thoughts. That's why he is spirit, and we worship in spirit. Yeah. It's not about what the world is and what it's doing. It's about what we're thinking in our head. You know, like when I do something bad, it's not that I did something bad. It's why I did it. See, and that's where God's intent is. He wants your mind to be clear and in his word. Right. And his word is stamped on our heart as far as compassion, understanding. So we have to be these things is what I'm saying. You yeah, and you're saying in religious language what I'm saying is, you're saying in religious language what I'm saying in secular language, which is that there is basically yes. some kind of a code wired into us that we call morality. Yes. You know, and this, like I said, this yes. was this was Jefferson's big debate with, with some of the Christians of his time was that, you know, he said, you don't need religion to have morality. Morality existed long before religion. So does religion reflect yes. morality? Does it enhance it? Thank you. Well said on all points. Oliver, in New York City. Watch this on YouTube. Hey, Oliver, what's up? Hey. I'm going to say something very briefly. Uh, first thing, I'm going to say two things and make it as brief as possible, okay? Sure. I sent you a, your Twitter, something about a plasma converter and a plasma arc recycler. It's very promising. You can get rid of everything on Earth that you put into them, except nuclear waste. Everything. doesn't matter what it is, okay? So plasma is basically superheated gases. Yes, um, I know. And so you're suggesting that using plasma, the heat is so great that it literally tears molecules down to atoms and in some cases turns atoms into ions, thus creating more plasma. That uh, plasma-based garbage disposal system is what we need. Yes. Is it practical? Is it, you know, I mean, right now, yes. to generate plasma takes massive amounts of electricity. No, actually, a plasma converter will run itself 
with electricity provided and then produce enough electricity so they can sell power, still have enough. But, but you need a massive electromagnetic field to hold that plasma in, that in space, because otherwise, if it hits the I edges think, of the thing, it'll melt them. No, I sent you two articles via Twitter. I'll check them out. I you the link. But I can't now, do that while we're talking. Yeah, I understand. Now, I make this as brief as talking about religion and all that, right? Mm-hmm. I'll say a couple of things. We're all spiritual beings, plants, insects, everything. Elon Musk believes that we are like some kind of super advanced futuristic algorithm and we're just part of a matrix. Right. He doesn't say he knows it, but he suspects it is so. Well, that's what I was saying about George Holtz, this guy who's the founder of Comma.ai. He did this presentation at Southwest last week saying that we're living in a simulation. We're not sure if it's from extraterrestrials who are treating us like ants in an ant farm, my phrase, not his, or whether it is ourselves, humans, you know, a thousand years in the future, having created a simulation and we are what they watch on TV. Yeah. I can tell you this. I had a lifetime experience. I have a story that's never been told, never been heard. There is, I'm not certain if it is God as is represented in the Bible or other religious texts from other religions or other. I can tell you this here. Before the end of the century, all religions will end. But there is a superpower that can create things that are mind-boggling. Just think about a baby falling three floors out of a window, hits the ground, and yet lives. Other babies fall, they die. A man jumps out. Well, those, I mean, that's what you're defining here, Oliver, is the essence of randomness. And by the way, when a baby's less than a year old, most of their bones are still basically cartilage. Um, Same with kittens and puppies. It's why they can fall and not die. They don't break like we do. Yeah, I understand that. They're not yet fully calcified. About babies, there are many babies that do fall out and they die. Sure, of course. But there's some who fall out of third floor, whatever, and live. But that doesn't defy the law of physics. That's not some supernatural being intervening. That's within the realm of physical explanation. A statue crying, men walking on hot burning coals or a sharp sword. The the walking on hot burning coals is real simple. You just burn those coals down to the point where there's not a lot of thermal mass and there's a whole enormous amount of ash, and anybody can walk on them as long as they don't stop moving. You haven't convinced me, Oliver. I'll check out your tweet, though. Thank you. Thanks for the call. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy really, I mean, the whole idea of democracy is the demos. It's us, right? The people. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 